encourage me once more by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're in chapter 2 now. We are moving along. As we seek to summit the great book of Romans. Said the book of Romans has as its theme God's gospel. Paul is spilling a lot of ink. He is going to great pains to lay out the fullness of God's gospel, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The book can be further broken down into three movements, if you will. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. God's gospel takes us on a journey from our guilt, in chapters 1 through 3, our sin, our guilt, on to God's grace and His salvation provided for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, in chapters 4 through 11. And then our response to that great salvation, a response of gratitude, which comes in chapters 12 through 16. So that means that here in Romans chapter 2, we are smack dab in the middle of Paul laying out the case that we are guilty. Guilty of sin before a holy God. If you were to arrange a score, a musical score, for these chapters, it would be dark. It would be in a minor key. It would leave you feeling that bad things were about to happen. For that is indeed the case as you read through Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3. The first three chapters of Romans leaves us all guilty, without a plea, without excuse. Now most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will probably agree that we have sinned, that our sin is serious, that our sin has left us separated from God, that our sin is serious, so serious that it means that we will face the judgment of God. But there may be some among us this morning who don't take their sin so seriously. They have a tendency to maybe minimize their sin. Maybe they have a tendency to fail to see their sin. They're prone to judge themselves on a sliding scale. To judge themselves and to give themselves a grade based on the curve of humanity. And they figure they're better than most people, and so therefore God will treat them as such, better than most people. He'll deal more kindly with them than with most people. It is to this second group that the Apostle Paul is turning his attention in chapter 2. The people who are self-assured, morally speaking, spiritually speaking. The people who are self-righteous, who believe that they're better than most people, they're better than others, 
and that God thinks so too. Paul is going to dissuade them of that fact, of that supposed fact. So let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 together and trace Paul's argument here. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for leaving us this witness of your truth. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We pray that your word and your spirit would be active among us. May it bring comfort to the afflicted and may it afflict the comfortable. Lord, we pray that in these verses we would see ourselves in our tendency towards self-righteousness, towards self-justification, towards self-reliance, and that we would see the futility of that and the wrath that awaits every soul who rests in their own righteousness. I pray, Lord, that we would flee from the wrath to come, that we would flee to the cross and there find Jesus who took upon Himself the fullness of Your wrath against our sin. And in trusting in Jesus, find mercy and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. May we who have already trusted find assurance, consolation, comfort, and joy knowing that our sins are forgiven and that the wrath of God is satisfied. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Paul seeks to convince his audience that they too are guilty of sin, we're going to see together three truths about self-righteousness that should seek and cause us to flee all self-righteousness for the gospel. To flee all self-righteousness for the cross of Jesus Christ, where alone we can find forgiveness, justification, and eternal life. So the first truth about self-righteousness that should cause us to flee all self-righteousness for the gospel is this. Self-righteous people are just as guilty before God as the sinners just described. Self-righteous people are just every bit as guilty before God 
as those sinners that Paul has just laid out for us in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul has been describing and laying out the tragic consequences of sin among humanity. And the presence, the active presence of God's wrath against sin in the world today. Look with me at Romans 1.18. Paul declares that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. One of the expressions of God's active wrath in the world today against sin is that He is enacting a form of judicial abandonment. He gives people over to their sin. He lets them go to their sin. He gives them over to themselves, to their unrighteousness. And the result of God's giving people over to their sin is a descent into greater and greater sin, a descent into greater and greater depravity. In verses 24 through 32 of chapter 1, are some examples of what humanity turns to when God hands them over to their sins. He first mentions the sin of homosexuality. He lists it first because it is a particularly vivid illustration of sin, of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, of idolatry. The sin of homosexuality is unnatural. In that is not in keeping with God's design and intention for humanity. God's design and intention for men and women. And yet despite the fact that men and women were clearly made for each other, that men and women physically complement each other and correspond to each other, despite the clarity of that design and intention, mankind has in many cases, rejected God and rejected God's clear plan for men and women, His clear plan for marriage, and His clear plan for human sexuality. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And while the sin of homosexuality is one of the clearest examples of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, it is by no means the only example. Verses 28 through 32, Paul shares a representative list of 21 sins that spring from a depraved mind. A depraved mind that is no longer able to discern between good and evil, between right and wrong. Romans 1, 28-32, look with me there. He says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That was chapter 1. 
humanity found guilty of sin. Now in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention away from humanity in general and especially the Gentiles, non-Jews, the pagans, and he begins to focus his attention here in chapter 2 on a more specific group, a more defined group, the Jewish people. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he speaks of them very generally, speaks of them broadly as suffering from the peculiar sins of judgmentalism and self-righteousness. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now again here, we have a therefore, and whenever you have a therefore, you've got to see what it's... Great, half of you. What is it there for? Well, the list of sins in chapter 1 has successfully caught everyone in the net. Caught every single person in the same net of guilt and sin. Therefore, Paul says, you have no excuse. You're not slipping through the net here. You too are guilty. Now, Paul is engaging in a kind of dialogue here with an an anonymous opponent. He's, in fact, using a literary device known as a diatribe. We use that word once in a while. Maybe you don't. I don't know. You say, this guy went off on a diatribe against this or that or the other thing. We say that he went on an extended argument giving reasons why his proposition was true. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's using this oratory, oratorical and literary device known as diatribe. In addition to using direct address, a diatribe often includes frequent questions and emphatic rejections of untrue statements. So Paul is engaging in here a a kind of imaginary conversation, an imaginary debate with an imaginary opponent. But that doesn't mean that his statements are untrue or that his reasoning itself is imaginary. Far from it. This imaginary conversation with his imaginary opponent reflects very real situations and very real people with very real viewpoints and perspectives. Paul is simply employing this commonly used literary device as a way of teaching and communicating the truth in an engaging way, anticipating objections from his audience, and as a way of exposing the presumption and inconsistency of those who oppose his teachings. In particular, it is the Jewish people that Paul has in focus here and really throughout most of chapter 2. But these arguments that Paul is making against the Jewish people generally can just as easily be applied to anyone who views themselves as slightly better than others, morally, spiritually. These things can be applied to anyone who's feeling morally superior to anyone who would call themselves righteous or 
spiritual or religious or who thinks that they have some spiritual advantage by nature of their birth, by nature of their morality or their nationality or their religion or their politics. So having laid out this list of sins that the pagan world so was so clearly guilty of, Paul now in chapter 2 pivots to consider how those who consider themselves morally and spiritually a cut above everyone else are in fact guilty as well. Paul is beginning to address his fellow Jews who as a rule viewed themselves as morally superior to everyone else. Morally superior to the Gentiles, non-Jews, pagans. After all, they were God's chosen people. They'd been given God's law, God's word. And God had entered into a special covenant with them. Even given them a sign that marked them out among all the other people. Circumcision. As being the special people of God. So the Jewish people tended to think too highly of themselves morally and spiritually and to look down on others. Paul, knowing this, takes them to task and says, Therefore, you too have no excuse. You too are guilty before a holy God. Jesus spoke of this very same human tendency and very at the time, very Jewish tendency towards self-righteousness. And we can find that in Luke chapter 18. And I want you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, just a few books back to your left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Jesus is going to address this issue of self-righteousness and judgmentalism directly. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Same issue that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 2, Jesus is dealing with in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Verse 10, here's the parable, here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the strictest sect of Judaism, prided themselves on law, being law-abiding citizens, being righteous and holy. So one's a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. This is the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. These are traitors to their nation, traitors to God, because they sold out and worked for the Romans and collected taxes from the Jewish people on behalf of the Roman oppressors. So they're believed to be the worst of sinners. So we got a Pharisee and we got a tax collector going up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Who is he praying to? Himself. Even though he addresses God. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. You can just see him grabbing his toga in self-confidence. I thank you that I am not like other people, God. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Patting himself on the back. Pleased with himself. Comparing himself to this tax collector, this filthy lowlife. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What a contrast between the two. Jesus gives his verdict in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now back to Romans 2. Jesus and Paul are directly addressing the same spiritual sickness. The same spiritual sin. The sin of self-righteousness. Paul joins with Jesus in pointing out and condemning all self-righteousness. And he says, you have no excuse. Why do they have no excuse? Because they've been busy judging others, looking down their nose at others from their moral high horse, judging others for their sins, all the while they themselves are in fact guilty of practicing the very same kinds of sins. Now they might be tempted to say, well, we haven't done all these things. We haven't murdered anyone. Jesus would like a word. If you've been angry with someone in your heart, you've murdered them from the heart. Well, we aren't guilty of homosexuality, sensuality. Jesus would like a word. If you lust after a woman in your heart, it's tantamount to idolatry from the heart. You think you're not guilty of these things? Well, how about the more mundane, common sins that we might see from this list in chapter 1. What about envy? Ever been envious of someone? Envious of what they have? Envious of where the life has taken them? Envious of the home they were born into? What about deceit? Ever twisted the truth? Shaped the truth for your own advantage? What about gossip? What about slander? Ever taken the opportunity to speak with a friend badly about someone else? Ever wanted others to think more highly of you so you spoke badly about others in their presence? What about being unloving? Ever been guilty of that? Or maybe you're one of the few actually non-existent, who always loves perfectly, who always loves consistently, who always loves unfailingly. 
Ever been guilty of that? How about being guilty of being arrogant? Thinking more highly of yourself and too little of others? Or being unmerciful? Or how about this one that gets us all? Ever been disobedient to your parents as a child? Any perfect kids here that grew up to be adults? I don't see any hands. We're all guilty, aren't we? With such a list as chapter 1 provides us, all attempts at self-righteousness fall like a house of cards. Self-righteousness in all its forms is delusional. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It's to believe better of yourself than is actually true. In fact, the only thing that self-righteousness will ever gain you is more guilt. Guilt from yet another sin. The sin of hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. Saying that you're a righteous person. And when in fact your life testifies to the fact that you aren't. So while you're sitting there in judgment of others for their moral inferiority, looking down your nose at those who are struggling with sins that you don't struggle with, you are in fact guilty of many of the very same sins as they. Therefore, Paul says, you have no excuse. Now in verse 2, Paul shares a truth that he knows his opponent will have to agree with. He's got his opponent on his heels already. He's stumbling backwards. So Paul finds some common ground in verse 2. And we know, you would agree, wouldn't you? And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Paul is sharing common ground here with his imaginary opponent. All will have to agree that God is just in judging those who practice sin. The Jews would certainly agree with this. God has to judge sin. If God didn't judge sin, He would cease to be holy. He would cease to be just. And He would cease to be good. Think about that. If a judge in a courtroom, an earthly courtroom, an earthly judge, failed to hold those who are guilty accountable for their crimes we would say that they aren't a good judge. That they do not uphold justice. And they, they do not deserve their position. And we'd likely seek to recall them, or we'd likely seek that they weren't voted in favor of again. Rightly so. Because a good judge is a just judge. And a just judge much, must uphold the law and punish wrongdoers. So it is with God. He's holy, just, and good, and therefore he must judge sin. Paul knew that even his opponents couldn't oppose this principle. And so now Paul has painted his self-righteous opponent into a logical corner. Look with me at verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things... And do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Just because you think you're morally superior and just because you think you can pass judgment on others even though you are guilty of some of the very same sins, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Fat chance. It's a rhetorical question Paul asks here, but the implied answer is a clear and resounding no. You won't escape. You won't and you can't escape God's judgment. No one will. Because we're all guilty before a holy God. Even those who have deluded themselves into thinking that they're somehow morally superior to everyone else. The self-righteous will not escape the judgment of God. This is Paul's point all throughout Romans 1 through 3. That we're all guilty before God. We'll get to it in Romans 3, 9. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Jews and non-Jews, that means everyone in the world, all are under sin. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, God doesn't grade on a curve. And He doesn't play favorites. All have sinned, and because all have sinned, all are guilty. And because all are guilty, all will face God's judgment. And no amount of self-deluded, self-righteousness will ever change that. The Jews, the Jewish people, largely believed that they were somehow exempt from God's judgment because of their privileged history, because of their privileged nationality. But the truth is, they were just as guilty of sin as everyone else. We can delude ourselves into thinking that we're better than other people. That somehow God is going to give us a pass because we're not as bad as those folks. We can look out and see lots of people who are worse than us. Murderers, thieves, the sexually immoral Oh God, I'm glad I'm not like those people. I'm not like that. I do this and I do that. And you know and you can see that I've lived a good life. But we're just kidding ourselves. We think that just because we're good at judging others and that we're bad at judging ourselves, that we're somehow going to be exempt from God's judgment against our sin. And there's no way that's true. Because self-righteous people are just as guilty before God and just as deserving of His judgment as any other sinner. You may think that you have some spiritual advantage over others. Some spiritual advantage before God because of the country you were born in or because of the family you come from, or because of the church you go to, or the church you used to go to, or because you're religious, or you're spiritual, or because you're a good person, and better than most. But none of these things can overcome the very real debt that our sins have created with God. Alright, that's the first lesson. That ought to cause us to run away from self-righteousness and run to the cross. The second lesson is this. God's kindness is intended to produce repentance, not greater self-righteousness. Verse 4. 
Romans 2. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul is calling out the self-righteous person's presumptuousness near. They are presuming upon God's goodness. They're taking for granted the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience as though it were owed to them, and it is not. As though there was some kind of contractual agreement. God, you've seen my life. You've seen how good I am. Therefore, you've got to be good to me. That's not how it works. Now, God is kind and tolerant and patient. The Bible reveals that. And if we're honest with ourselves and our lives, we can say that experience proves that truth. God is kind and tolerant and patient. God is good. Kindness and tolerance and patience are all aspects of who God is. They're all aspects of His perfections. God is good. He is perfectly good. He is infinitely good. He is good in all that He is. He is good in all that He does. He is good in all His ways. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. You guys are way out of practice on that. God is good. All the time. It's better. God is good in all his ways. Psalm 145 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. God is good to every person. He couldn't be otherwise because he is. And he acts and does out of who he is. He is good, so he does good. He's good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. His mercies, God's mercies, God's goodness are embedded into the creation He has made so that we continue day after day, every day that we live, to benefit from the goodness that God has built into the creation He has made. Jesus says in Matthew 5.45 that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Whether they live justly or unjustly, the rain still falls on their crops, still falls on the lakes and rivers that supply them water. In Luke 6.35, Jesus said that God is kind even to the ungrateful and evil people. God is kind even to evil people. In Exodus 34.6, God leaves His calling card. He gives His resume if you will to Moses and he describes himself this way he says I am the Lord the Lord God compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth God is good all the time now that one I wasn't ready for it that's good and from God's goodness flows his tolerance and his patience with rebels and sinners. We are rebels. That is who we are. We are sinners by nature and by choice. That's how we're all born into this world because of the curse of God against sin, because of our 
forefather Adam. We have inherited sinful, rebellious natures. That is what we are outside of Christ. And that's what we naturally do. And so we truly deserve God's judgment. You see, we don't deserve God's goodness. We don't have it coming to us. You see, what do we have coming to us as rebels of the God who made us and gives us life and breath and all things? What do we deserve? We deserve instant judgment. We deserve instant hell. The moment of our very first rebellious act, we deserve for our life to be snuffed out and to enter into an eternity of suffering. And God would be just and he would be within his rights to do just that, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he lets us live. He lets us go on breathing the air that he has provided. He lets us go on drinking the water that he has provided. He lets us go on eating the food that he has provided. In his goodness, he is tolerant and patient with us. He continues to give us life and breath and all things. He continues to let our heart beat. He continues to let us take our next breath. He provides for us food and shelter and clothing and health and a host of good things to enjoy. Even while we're continuing in our sin and rebellion against Him. What a kind and patient God. But you see, sinful human beings presume upon that goodness, presume upon God's kindness and patience. And we say, well, God must not be upset with me. Look at all that I have. Look at how well I'm doing. Look at how well I'm prospering. Look at how healthy I am. I'm living the good life. God must be okay with me. But that is a terrible misread of the situation. Because God is not being kind to you in order to affirm you in your sin, but rather to call you to repentance. See, it's easier to draw a fly with honey than it is with vinegar. And that is what God is doing, seeking to do with His kindness, His goodness, His patience, and His tolerance. To draw us to himself. He's revealing himself to us in order that we might be led by his goodness to repentance. He is good to you and gives you not only time and life, but all kinds of good gifts so that you might come to your senses and repent of your sins and trust in him who is so good that he's provided for you your greatest need through His Son, Jesus Christ. God is good to you, not in order to affirm you in your sins, but to nudge you awake out of your sinful slumber by His kindness. When I was a young boy, sometimes my mom would wake me up. Whether it's for school or something else going on or for church. And she would always do so with great kindness. Unless, of course, I was late and had slept in and had already passed through her kindness. (laughs) Then it was maybe a different experience. But 
for the most part, it was awaking me up out of my sleep with kindness, with gentleness, with tenderness, with a soft voice, maybe rubbing my arm gently to cause me to awaken out of my deep sleep. Enjoying the living world once again. In a similar way, God uses His goodness, His kindness, His patience and tolerance with gentle tones and soft speech to awaken you out of your sinful slumber and call you to Himself that you might live again. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just have a taste. Open your eyes. Taste and see. God's goodness is everywhere if we're honest with ourselves. That doesn't mean life isn't hard sometimes. That doesn't mean people haven't done evil things to you and hurt you and harmed you in unspeakable ways. But despite those things, that are intrusions into the world God created. Nevertheless, God's goodness still exists. God's goodness is still detectable. Just taste and see that God is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Let me tell you, if you think God is good now, wait until you taste and see. Wait until you fully take the plunge and believe on Him and find the goodness of the Lord to be an infinite reservoir of blessing and goodness and kindness. Can you see God's goodness and kindness and tolerance and patience in your life? Don't presume upon God's kindness. Don't mistake His kindness for an affirmation of your life of sin. Don't mistake His good gifts as a sign that He is well pleased with you just as you are. No, His good gifts are intended to woo you to Himself to find greater goodness, not in yourself, but in He who is good. And He who is good incarnate, the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, Finally, presuming upon God's kindness and self-righteousness results only in greater wrath on Judgment Day. Verse 5. Just as we shouldn't mistake God's kindness for an affirmation of a life of sin, even so we shouldn't mistake God's kindness for weakness. He is not weak. Just because God is kind today doesn't mean that there isn't wrath on the way. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Because of our depraved minds, because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, on our own, we can't see God's kindness for what it truly is. An invitation to more goodness, more kindness, more blessing. A gentle and gracious call to repentance. No, our stubborn and unrepentant hearts refuse to see God's kindness and tolerance and patience toward us. Refuse to see and acknowledge and confess and repent of our own sins that are too many to number. And the tragic result is that the unrepentant sinner is storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. 
We presume upon God's kindness and it only results in more judgment to come. Beloved, judgment day is coming. Flee from the wrath to come. Although God is kind and He is tolerant and He is patient, His kindness and His tolerance and His patience have a definite limit. The Bible tells us that God has fixed a day, determined a day, set it on the calendar in which He will judge the world in righteousness. And every day that goes by draws us closer to that day of judgment. And the result of our judging others for their sins, all the while dismissing the existence of our own sin and guilt, the result of failing to see the goodness and kindness of God as a compelling reason to repent, the result of all of this is that unbelievers are storing up for themselves wrath for the day of wrath. They're piling up wrath upon wrath over their own heads, and it's ready to befall. Humanity's stubbornness and unrepentant heart is causing them to stockpile God's wrath for the future day of wrath. It's like a warehouse of wrath waiting for the doors to be opened and the wrath to pour out. In the book of Revelation, John, the apostle, pictures this future day of wrath And those who will have to face it, listen to this troubling scene. Romans, sorry, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. He says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and even every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand indeed? No one is able to stand on their own. No one is able to stand in their own self-righteousness. All are guilty. All are judged. And all will face God's wrath if you try to stand on your own. The plain truth is, J.C. Ryle said, the plain truth is that a proper knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. A proper knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. It's a hard message to hear that we're all guilty and condemned before a holy God. Even those who are delusionally self-righteous. Hard message to hear. But if you are sick, you've got to first diagnose the true problem before an effective treatment can be given and applied. A proper knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. If you ever want to get saved, first you've got to understand that you're lost. You've got to understand that on your own there is no hope for you. God's wrath against sin is coming. And you're either going to face that wrath one of two ways. 
Either you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath by being stubbornly unrepentant in spite of God's goodness, or you are fleeing the day of wrath by fleeing to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross where Jesus drank in full the cup of God's wrath for you. Jesus, who suffered the wrath of God in your place for your guilt because of your sin. Jesus, who offers to you today, right now, forgiveness of sins and eternal life by turning from your sins, repenting, and trusting in His righteousness and not your own. Flee self-righteousness and run to the righteousness that is Christ's. Righteousness that is offered you through the cross. Righteousness that comes by way of faith, not of works. Stop trusting in your own deluded sense of goodness. Stop trusting in your own self-righteousness and trust in the righteousness of the Son of God who bore the wrath of God in full on your behalf. Flee to the cross. Let's probably pray together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the wrath that my sins deserved. You didn't deserve it. You alone lived a life of perfection, a life of righteousness, fulfilling every law of God all your days. I couldn't live that life for a moment. We all stumble in many ways. We are all unfaithful servants. We acknowledge that before you. And we thank you for the perfect sacrifice you made on our behalf. And that there on the cross you drank in full the cup of God's wrath that we deserved. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for any here who aren't sure if they're a Christian. I pray for any here who have been resting in their goodness, resting in their self-righteousness. Lord, that you would afflict them you would cause them to be uncomfortable so that they run from the wrath that is to come and run to the cross where the wrath was satisfied and taken away and in its place joy eternal thank you Jesus for such a gift it's in Christ's name we pray